doesn't make that much difference in the whole scheme of things, so I'm not really that motivated to pray. And I remember one guy who did say it. He was coming to church, and he put a prayer request in our church prayer letter about his dad who was sick. He said, please pray for my dad that God would heal him. And uh, oh, a couple months after he put it in the prayer letter, his dad died. And then, uh, I don't know how much longer, he put a prayer request in the, in the prayer letter about his job. He said, my company is doing some cutbacks. Pray that I wouldn't lose my job. Only he lost his job. And a while later, he put a little prayer request in there. He says, my wife and I are struggling. Please pray that God would keep our marriage together. Well, not too long after that, she divorced him. And so it came to me and he said, Pastor D, I'm leaving the church. Usually when somebody leaves, I can see it coming. It's usually no surprise. If the, I mean, if it's more than simply just moving or, uh, but if it's because they're upset at me or something, I can see it coming. There's usually some signs that, uh-uh, they're not very happy. And so, but this one caught me totally off guard when he said, I'm leaving the church. I said, well, why? He said, because you believe in prayer and I don't. And every time you announce prayer meeting, it just irritates me. So I'm leaving. And he did. And I asked him, I said, well, well, explain. He said, well, I put in the prayer letter that God would heal my dad, and he didn't. I put in the prayer letter that he would save my job, he didn't. I put in the prayer letter to keep my marriage together, and he didn't. Doesn't make any difference. So I'm out of here. I've never seen him since or heard from him since. But it got me to thinking, I wonder all these people that I nag and nag and nag and nag that come to prayer and they don't come to prayer. I wonder if kind of in the back of their head, they're thinking the very same thing. Because if I were to ask every one of you over a cup of coffee, you ever have any things that you prayed for that didn't happen? We've all got a long list of things we've prayed for and uh, it didn't seem to make any difference. So even though we may not say out loud, prayer doesn't matter, God's going to do what he's going to do, we still have that sort of in the back of our head and influences us. So because the volume of praying, the gist of this class is that when we pray, God sends angels and he commissions angels and they resist the kingdom of darkness and it changes things. Um, we're going to talk about God's sovereignty this morning and uh, our free will and how that fits if it does. Uh, In your notes, number one, one of the major barriers to prayer in many people's mind is the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God. Does what I do matter? Can I change anything, either by praying or doing, working or serving? Or is God just doing it all and we're just along for the ride? James chapter 4 come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away instead you ought to say if the Lord wills we will live and also do this or that so obviously God's will God's working is a major factor when I was a freshman in college Uh, I was milking cows from midnight till 6 in the morning to pay my college bill. 
And, uh, and I w- uh, went to a prayer meeting that the freshman class had once every month. And we were sitting there, and one of the other guys in the group, in the, my class, raised his hand. He said, please pray for me that next semester I will have enough money to pay my tuition bill so I can stay in school. And I said, God answered your prayer already. He looked at me, how's that? Where I milk, they are needing someone to clean calf pens, and it pays a buck twenty-five an hour, which was, you know, pretty good money back then. And he looked at me, and he says, D, D, D. When will you ever learn? You don't have to knock yourself out milking cows from midnight six in the morning. Just trust God. And I felt about that high. I thought, wow. Man, I'd love it if I could go to school and not milk cows. I could chase girls more. A whole lot of things I would do instead of doing that. And so there was one professor that I went to fairly often with questions. Uh, he was my advisor, and so we got connected pretty early on. And I went to see him, and I told him about the event that occurred. And I says, so shall I quit my job milking cows from midnight till 6 in the morning? He said, I tell you what, let's wait until next semester rolls around and see what happens to Joe. I said, okay. So we had our next permitting, and Joe wasn't there. I said, where's Joe? Well, he's not in school this semester. He couldn't pay his tuition bill. Huh. Well, maybe he should have taken that job. But it created this question mark in my head. If I could just conjure up enough faith and had enough trust in God's provision... Wow, life could probably be a whole lot easier with not so much work and effort and sweat. Number two, those people who use the sovereignty of God as a reason for not praying much believe that their prayers don't make any difference anyway. Because God's going to do what God's going to do. Now, I've met people like that, and they really don't have that much trust. You know what they do have? They have a whole bunch of bitterness and resentment. Because they believe that every bad thing that has happened to them in their life was God's fault. You ever hear anybody say that? If God really loved me, this wouldn't have happened. If God really loved me, my wife wouldn't have died. If God really loved me, this wouldn't have happened. So everything that happens is God's fault. And so because they believe in the sovereignty of God to that degree, everything that occurs is God doing it to them, including all the bad things that happen. And so they get pretty upset at God. They don't really love him that much. It's kind of nice to have somebody to blame for every bad thing that happens in your life. You ever hear anybody blame their mother when they're an adult? Yeah, I've heard quite a few. My mom's fault. If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be like this. It's my dad's fault. It's my brother's fault. It's somebody's fault. Somebody did this, did that, and because of that, here I am. I'm paying the price for what they did. And it's kind of nice to have God as the scapegoat for every bad thing that's ever occurred. He's going to do what he's going to do, so it doesn't really matter what I do, good or bad. Number three, there are many events in the future that are predetermined by God set in stone. So 
we talk, I talk. I say, man, I sure wish the Lord would come tomorrow. And then I'll say this. I'll say, on my 80th birthday, the rapture's happening. And you will say, how, how do you know that? I don't, just a guess. But sometimes some people say, you shouldn't say that. You don't know. Is it going to happen? Sure, it's going to happen. Do you know the day? You don't. I don't. But is there a day? Or is God just kind of waiting to see what happens? Sure, there is a day and an hour and a time. It's set in stone. There are a whole bunch of events that God has ordained, predetermined, set in stone, and they're going to happen. Uh, when I went into partners with my dad after I graduated from college, he were Darian, and before then, I was the kid, I was the son, and what dad said, I did, and there was no discussion. Now we form a partnership. And so I ventured to ask, so do I have any input, say, what goes on on this dairy? He says, yep. I tell you what, let's do it this way. He said, I'll be in charge of the farming, raising the hay, that stuff, and I'll be in charge of the calves, replace, raising replacement heifers. You be in charge of the cows and the milking and everything that goes with that. How do you like that? I said, I like, that's a good one. Cool. And he said, uh, now, that doesn't mean that I can't have some input into the dairy, the cows, or that you can't have some input into what kind of hay we grow or when we cut it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he said, let me give you some wisdom. You should be able to tell when you talk to me whether this is set in stone or whether it's not. There are certain things that I'm not going to change my mind on. You should be able to figure that out quickly. Don't waste time discussing with me on those. You're just going to make me mad. Okay. I figured that out quickly. Uh, There's some things he was flexible on, some things he wasn't. Once I figured out what he wasn't flexible, I never brought him up because it did no good. All it did was irritate him. So no sense even getting there. So God has... They are set in stone. They are not going to change. They are predetermined, pre-planned by God. Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. It's a secret. (laughs) I hate secrets. Number four, between and around the major events that God has predetermined, there is a lot of freedom, like boulders in a stream. So I went down the Rogue River with Pastor Mike on a rafting trip, and I had my very own raft. I bought it. And uh, if you know anything about the Rogue, it's got some pretty severe rapids in it, and you maneuver the raft down the river, and we're going to camp. And it was, a, I think, a three-day trip down the Rogue, and we ate dinner, and we camped, and we got out, and we went down the river. And we would, before we would get to a particular rapid, we'd get out and we'd inspect it and say, okay, I think that's the route to go, and you got to do this and do that. And so there was banks. You were inside the banks, and there were rocks. And you maneuvered. You could go that side of the rock. You could go that side of the rock. You could pull over any time you wanted. There was a lot of freedom as we went down the river, but we were in the river. And it was important that you didn't run into the rocks. Usually created a crisis. 
of one degree or another, even to the point of flipping the raft over and getting wet and losing your stuff. So I view life like running a raft down the Rogue River. I can go this side, I can go this side, I can go a little faster, I can go a little slower, I can stop anytime I want, but don't run into the rocks. And so it's a balance between God's sovereign will and my responsibility in working and serving. J. Vernon McGee put it this way. You want to go to Chicago? You can fly, you can drive, you can walk, you can ride a bicycle, you can get on a train. And when you're on the train, if you've got one of those places where you sleep, you've got your place where you sleep, and then you go up here and you eat, and then you go up to this one place where it's got windows up there and you can see the scenery. And so you can go anywhere on that train you want, but it's going to get to Chicago on this particular date at this particular time. In between that, on that rail, you do what you want. But you're on the train headed for Chicago. I like my illustration with the river better, but you can take your choice on that one. Number five, the predetermined events are the ones that God has included as prophecy in the Bible. So read uh, the book of Isaiah, read the book of Daniel, read the book of Revelation. There are big rocks, boom, boom, boom. Most of them don't have a date, but they are set. And we can figure it out often after the fact. Uh, But it's a major proof that the Bible is true and accurate by fulfilled prophecy that God prophesied and happened. Uh, And the sequence and the timing that it said that it would um, Acts 15, 8 says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago that's prophecy who makes God who makes these things that is these events in the future known from long ago so you read Daniel you read Isaiah you read Hosea you read Revelation there's prophecy about the future God has predetermined those events they're the big rocks in the stream Number six, God's foreknowledge is what messes with our minds and makes free will hard to understand. So the question is, does God know everything, every detail that's going to happen in the future? The answer, yes, he does. So we, we recognize that if God's God, that's true. So, if he knows it, he must have caused it. Romans 8.29 Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Predestination and election is a topic that gets debated all the time. Notice the sequence there. Those whom he foreknew... He also predestined. First Peter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen, who are chosen, predestined, elected, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Number seven, just because God foreknows what could happen doesn't mean that it will happen. Just because God 
foreknows what could happen doesn't mean that it will happen. So I had six serious girlfriends prior to marrying Patty. None of them after, obviously. And I could have married any one of the six. I mean, we were, you know, fairly good friends. I remember one of them, uh, I came to the conclusion that "Ah, I don't want to marry her. So it was right during Christmas break when I was a freshman in college. And so she wasn't on campus. She had been the year before, uh, but at that point she wasn't. But I got to know her because her brother was, and we were friends. And so we started dating. And she was really serious. She wanted to get married tomorrow. And it was kind of that which caused me during Christmas break to decide, ah. And so I just never called her again. I didn't say bye, nothing. I just, just, and I, you know, I felt guilty about that for years and years and years and years. And we had a reunion, college reunion. She was there. Oh, I was so, man, it was just a rotten thing to do. But I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to say, hey, you know, I'm done with you, whatever. I just, it was, I just decided just to huh, not say anything. But I, I could have married her. Suppose I did. The guy she's married to now would have had to find somebody else. And the one he married, uh, that one would have had to find somebody else too. Do you ever think about how one little choice changes history? Amazing. I got eight kids now. I got 29 grandkids. What would have happened had I married that one? I don't know. Was it a possibility? It was. I could have done that. 1 Samuel 23, 8, Saul summoned all the people for war to go down to Keliah to besiege David and his men. Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him, so he said to Abathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Now we don't know exactly how this worked, but this ephod the priest had was a way for God to reveal his will. Bring the ephod here. David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keliah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keliah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. He will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keliah surrender me, my men, into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, about 600 of those, rose, departed from Keliah, and they went wherever they could go. When it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keliah, he gave up the pursuit. So David said, will Saul come? He will. If he does, will the people in the city turn me over to him rather than get destroyed? And God said, they will. So David did something different. God knew what would happen if he did this, and he chose not to. So because God knows something will happen doesn't mean it will happen. Acts 27, this is uh, Paul. And uh, remember, he goes sailing and gets in a couple of jams on his sailing trip. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice. (laughs) I say that to my kids all the time. 
And anyway, they're in a jam. He said, you should have done what I told you to do way back there. And not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Now, why did Paul tell him that? Because God communicated to Paul that don't get on that ship, stay here, because if you do, there's going to be a big storm come. Paul tells him to do that. They get on the ship anyway. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of of, of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God, uh, believe God that it will turn out exactly as I've told you. But we must run aground on a certain island. But when the 14th night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And a little further on, they took another sounding, found it to be 15 fathoms. So it's getting shallower. That's not good news in a sailing ship. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern, wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship, let down the ship's boat into the sea. And so the guys running the ship says, okay, these are a bunch of prisoners and no accounts on this ship. We're going to leave them here and we're getting out of here. They did this on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion, to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourself cannot be saved. So Paul's already said, nobody's going to die. But Paul says, if these guys take off, you're going to die. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away until the day was about to dawn. Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. And so as you read that story, it's obvious that there is some flex in what God said would happen you got to do this if that's going to happen. And if you don't do it, then it's not going to happen. Number eight, just because God foreknows what will happen doesn't mean that he caused it to happen. And so this is a biggie with a lot of people who have resentment and bitterness towards God because they assume that because God is God and in charge and sovereign, everything that happens, God caused Now, if we're going to learn something about angels and demons, we're going to learn that Satan and his demons have a lot of power and change the course of human history by that power. Now, they don't move the rocks. They're set. But they can certainly impact and influence everything that happens around those rocks. Did you know, we'll look at this, that God kept the crucifixion of Jesus, a secret? It wasn't until after the fact that you could see it in the Bible. Jesus opens the eyes of his disciples and shows them he kept it a secret. Why? He didn't want the devils to know and the demons to know. And it says in 1 Corinthians, if they had known what the death of Jesus would accomplish, they would have never done it. And so God kept it a secret so they couldn't impact or influence it. 
are always messing with God's plan every chance they get. And they do it in your life as well. Number nine, God's word is full of options and choices given to us by God. Those choices wouldn't be legitimate if God was locked into what he was going to do or what he was uh, going to make us do. So we did a, I do a bicycle trip every year. And and one year we did a bicycle trip, two years, actually, we did a bicycle trip that included Yellowstone. And uh, one where we pedaled down to the Grand Canyon, then pedaled up to Yellowstone and then pedaled home. It was a 4,000 mile trip, probably the most enjoyable trip I've been on. But when we're in Yellowstone riding, pedaling down the road, we stop because there's a lot of hills there in Yellowstone. It's a fairly high elevation and we see sites along the way. One of the sites, and some of you may remember, I can't remember the name, I meant to look it up. There's a lake. And it says on this lake, there's two outlets, one that side and one that side. The water that comes out of the lake on this side ends up in the Atlantic Ocean. The water that comes out of the lake on this side ends up in the Pacific Ocean. The lake is not much wider than this building. I thought, wow. And so I stood right in the middle and I spit. (laughs) Where is that going to end up? The Atlantic or the Pacific? And so I looked, I thought, okay, it's kind of running this way. In fact, I followed it. Oh, yeah. And so I moved over this way two feet. Now, that one went that way. One spit ended up in the Atlantic, one spit ended up in the Pacific, and it wasn't two feet apart. That's amazing. So, had I married Anita, I mean, I would be in the Atlantic Ocean now. But I didn't. I married Patty. So now I'm in the Pacific Ocean. And if I had married Anita, again, as I said, the guy that married her would have had to marry somebody else. And like a dominoes, everything is a packed pipe. One choice. One choice. My choice, your choice, everybody's choices. We all choose all along the way. And our choices are legitimate. Deuteronomy 30, chapter 30, verse 15 See, I have set before you today, God speaking, life and prosperity and death and adversity in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, that you may live and multiply, that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them I declare to you today that you will surely perish you will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death the blessing and the curse so choose life in order that you may live you and your descendants by loving the Lord your God by obeying his voice and by holding fast to him for this is your life the length of your days that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to give to them is that legitimate? is God just blowing smoke here? when he says I've set before you today life and death health and sickness riches and poverty you choose is God is that true? Sure it is. I mean, it's right there, black and white. God said it. I choose. So, because God knows what will happen doesn't mean he caused it to happen. 
And his word continually says, those whom I love, I discipline and scourge. Why? So that you choose differently. So that you choose differently. Um, You know, I'm old. That means when I grew up, my parents spanked me. Unlike now. What did I get spanked for? When I brought home good grades? No. What did I get in trouble for? When I was good? No. My dad was big on reward and punishment. I lipped off to my science teacher when I was a senior in high school. I mean, it really wasn't a bad lip off. I just told him that he was stupid. <clears throat> it got back to my dad. Now, there was us three older boys and my sister and then my youngest brother. Us three older boys were just a year apart. So we pretty much did everything together from the time we were born up through even now. Uh, and so we milked. Two milked, one slept in. And we rotated. So when you milked, you got up at four. When you slept in, you got up at seven. Four, seven. Ah. Is there a difference? Yeah. So dad said to me, when it got back to me, what I'd said to Mr. Gilson... You are never sleeping in again the rest of your life. Oh, good grief. Did I ever lip off to Mr. Gilson again? Never. I brought him coffee. I washed the windows in his room. I, I cleaned off his chalkboard. I believed in cause and effect. Do right, get rewarded. Do bad, get disciplined. And so God says that right there. Choose to obey me, to love me, because it'll make a difference in your life. So the person says that's going through tough times, it's God's fault. Ah, I think probably it's your fault. Um, That's just the way it works. Number 10, God can and often does tilt the table towards his will. Tilt the table towards his will. you know why I'm here God killed my cows I bought 40 registered Guernsey cows the best in the world and I was going to be the worst the best most successful dairy farmer in the entire world I had my goals all set so God had a different plan, and so six months after I bought my cows, half of them were dead. In spite of everything I did, veterinarians couldn't figure it out. I mean, I worked like a dog to keep that from happening, but it happened anyway, and so I had to go back into farming with my dad, and then I decided maybe I'd go back to school and, uh, and get a couple more years of Bible training because I needed to work in my church at home, and while I was there, I had to have a Christian service assignment that was part of going to school there, and so I checked with our uh, association or denomination guy that was in charge of everything. I said, any churches in the area that are small that I could get involved with? He said, they're going to start a church in Jefferson in a couple of months. If you want to get involved in that, you can do that. And so I checked uh, with the, the the guy that was the uh, going to be the pastor of the, the church that was starting it. And I went and talked to him. And he said, oh, yeah, they're going to start in Jefferson. You... So I was at the first service on October 7th, 1973, Patty and I. And... Uh, And here I am. How'd that happen? 
If God hadn't killed my cows, I would still be on the dairy. And I would be the world's greatest dairy farmer. So he does that. Acts 22, 6. It happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven. This is the Apostle Paul. Now remember, the Apostle Paul was trying to kill all the Christians. He hated them. And he's on his way to Damascus to kill a bunch more. This bright light flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you? He said, I am Jesus, the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. I ask you this question. If that hadn't happened, would the apostle Saul became Paul, started all these churches and wrote, written um, the bulk of the New Testament? Probably not. So God wanted Saul to be his man. How many people do you know wouldn't become a Christian if that happened to them? I talked to somebody once. I said, well, you know, I'm not sure about this Christianity stuff. He said, I'm just waiting for God to show me a bright light and knock me to the ground and speak to me from heaven. Then I'll believe. Well, I'm not sure that's going to happen, but, you know, I guess... When you end up in hell, I'm not sure you can blame God uh, for that choice. Number 11, the judgment seat of Christ would have no purpose if there wasn't a great deal of free will on our part to either serve Christ well or poorly. So I'm going to stand before Jesus at the end of my life and I'm going to give an account for the life I've lived, the opportunities I've had, and there's going to be reward given to me by him and also consequence, probably loss of reward for what I could have done but didn't do. Now, the person who thinks about that a lot has what the Bible calls the fear of God. People ask me regularly, what's it mean when the Bible, I mean, there's over 50 references to fearing God as a good thing. People ask me all the time, what's that mean? I said, it means fear God. Are we supposed to be afraid of God? Yeah, you are. You're going to stand in front of him someday and give an account of your life. If that doesn't make you nervous, then you're stupid. Close to brain dead. I don't know if I've ever really said that to anybody, but uh, I've thought it. That's what the fear of the Lord means. He is judge. He is judge. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed, rewarded for his deeds, his work, his service in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So occasionally, somebody will do something, sing a song or do something, and I'll say afterwards, wow, that was really good. Thank you for blessing me. Oh, shucks. Wasn't me. God did it. Why didn't he do it through me? We accomplish, you accomplish, I accomplish. We do things because God has given us what we need to do it, but we pull the trigger. We make the choice. We take the risk. We pay the price. And when we stand before Jesus, he's going to reward us for that. 
He's going to reward us well. Romans 14, 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Are you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. Then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. 1 Corinthians 3.10, according to the grace which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and others building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it, speaking of the church. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it. That's the day we stand before Jesus, because it is to be revealed tested with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work of any man's work which he has built on it that's the church remains he will receive a reward any man's work is burned up he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved yet so is through fire did you know there's a lot of people who don't think it matters what you do here I'm going to heaven that's all that counts There's going to be a huge difference in heaven, top to bottom, uh, between those who have served well here and those who haven't on the basis of the rewards they receive that they carry, we carry into heaven with us. It's going to make a huge difference in our relationship with Jesus and what we do and the joy we feel. See, what we do in this life matters. It wouldn't matter if God did it all. But we choose. We're responsible, we're diligent, or we're not. Number 12. God is totally just and fair by his very nature, so reward and judgment must be based on a person being either responsible and diligent or irresponsible, selfish, and lazy. So if you read through the book of Proverbs, you'll find 20 references to the blessing from God for diligence. Over 20. Or it says God blesses when we are diligent and work hard. And a whole bunch of consequences towards the person who is lazy and irresponsible. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Genesis 18.25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly. And God does. And so he treats us according to our faithfulness and our service and our diligence. Uh, Jesus in Matthew seven twenty four. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell. Great was its fall. So, I don't think Jesus would have said that if it didn't matter what you did. I was talking to a fellow who was going to a church over in Idaho. And uh, 
used to be here, you know, how everybody's moving to Tennessee and Idaho. Well, he moved to Idaho. And he's been there for several years now, I think four. Uh, he actually moved over there before COVID. I said, you going to church? Yeah. How is it? I don't know. We're looking for a different one. I said, why is that? Well, they're, they're, they're just this group that believes that God is sovereign. I said, oh, yeah, that's cool. Well, this one's a little bit over the top. I said, what do you mean? Well, they don't think it matters whether we witness or not. God's going to save who he's going to save. And it really doesn't matter uh, whether we work in the church or not because God's going to do what he's going to do. And so everybody is sort of apathetic and lukewarm because it doesn't matter what they do. If they read their Bible, if they don't, if they go to church, whether they don't, if they witness or they don't, God's going to do what he's going to do. And so the whole church is just kind of, eh, vanilla. Uh, he said, it's funny, you'd think that that would generate a joy or a strength or something based on their trust in God, but it doesn't seem to have done that at all. So anyway, we're looking for a church more like JBC, where what you do matters. I said, okay, I hope you find it. <clears throat> At 14, all the reteaching and encouragement of the Bible for each of us to be fruitful, faithful witnesses assumes that we matter. And the final outcome of who is in heaven and who lives in hell forever. That we matter. I asked someone once, do you think there's going to be some people in hell because you were chicken to ever talk to them about Jesus? Oh, no. We're really not that big a deal in the whole thing. So what's that going to do to you? Ah, I don't need a witness. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Paul makes this statement. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Why did Jesus say that? Because witnesses, that's us sharing Jesus with other people. It matters. 2 Corinthians 5.18 Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ gave us the ministry of reconciliation namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them he has committed to us the word of reconciliation he has committed to us the word of reconciliation that's the gospel therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us we beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Acts 20, 25, now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Paul's leaving, he uh, is going to Rome Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. What's that about? I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. He's making reference to a passage in the book of Ezekiel, which they would have known. Ezekiel 3, when I say to the wicked, you will surely die... And you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. 
Yet if you have warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall surely die in his iniquity, but you have delivered him. Again, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and I place an obstacle before him, he will die. Since you have not warned him, he shall die in his sin and his righteous deeds which he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. However, if you have warned the righteous man that the righteous should not sin and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning and you have delivered yourself. So, bottom line in all that is that What I do matters in your life. And what I don't do because of laziness or irresponsible behavior or distraction matters. And it matters to you, whoever God would bring into my life. Same thing is true of you. We matter in the whole scheme of things. Fifteen, there are many things that God wants to happen that don't. He wants them to happen, but they don't because of the free will uh, that he has given us and others. Some would say, really? First Timothy 2, first of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He desires all men to be saved. I've heard people explain that away. Oh, that doesn't mean all men, that only means those whom God chose. If that's what he meant, then it seemed like he would have said it. He desires all men to be saved. Are all men going to be saved? No. Why? Any number of reasons. But the fact is, it could be me. And it could be you. You say, whoa, that's a heavy load. It's supposed to be. But because we explain the whole thing away, there's a lot of Christians that have very little motivation to do much with their life. Because it really doesn't matter. We're just, you know, in the sea, floating along with everybody else. God's going to do what God's going to do. 16, God's sovereignty does not mean that God cannot or will not change his mind. And so when we talk about prayer, what is prayer? One of the things that we're actually doing is we're moving God's hand by our praying. Now, he's chosen to do that. It's not against his will. Exodus chapter 32, verse 10. Now then, let me alone that my anger, this is God speaking to Moses, let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. I will make of you, Moses, a great nation. Then Moses entreated, that's prayer, Entreated the Lord as God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. 
Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken. I will give give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Get some commentaries and read what a lot of commentaries say about that passage. I mean, they explain it away quite effectively. God really didn't change his mind. So the Lord changed his mind. So why doesn't it really mean that? Numbers 14, then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and those who had spied out the land tore their clothes, and they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, the land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. The land is pleased. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst, I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you, Moses, into a nation greater and mightier than they. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For by your strength you brought up this people from their midst. They will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath. Therefore, he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray... I pray that the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. He will by no means clear the iniquity, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So the Lord said, I pardon them according to your word. How much power, influence did Moses have with God on the part of the nation of Israel? How much do I have for you? How much changing does God does do on the basis of a fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman? Exodus thirty-two thirty. On the next day, Moses said to the people, "You yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin." Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin. They have made a god of gold for themselves. But now if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. And so to save some time, I'll just say, God changed his mind. And I'm running out of time, so I'm going to skip the one on Jonah. But you remember the story. God's going to destroy Nineveh. But Jonah goes in and preaches, and the people repent. And it says... God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. He did not do it. 
Jeremiah. I'll read this one, 18, 7 through 10. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up and to plan it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which, with which I had promised to bless it, which I had promised to bless it. I will change my mind. Psalms 106.45, he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented, relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. 17, many theologians often arrive at a doctrine based on some Bible passages and then modify other passages or interpret them to fit the pre-existing doctrine. You see that all the time. Now, what that is, is, is uh, doctrine out of balance. Almost every major truth in the Bible has a corresponding antithesis and opposite. And it's the balance between those that create the truth. And the reason is because we're people. God's God. Um, And so it's a tough thing for us to get it, understand it. And so often you see these things in Contrast to each other. 18, one of the definitions of heresy is truth out of balance. Nineteen, there are several doctrines that appear to be at odds with each other, but often these opposing truths are both true and balance with each other. And if you work at it, study, you can fit them together. Isaiah 55, 8, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. 20, an overemphasis on grace and forgiveness often results in Christians who are apathetic about pursuing holiness. This is a big problem. A big problem. I'm saved by grace through faith, not a result of works, it's a gift from God. Okay, I'm going to heaven. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I live. So you're going to step into heaven, but what's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ? There's a whole lot more than just getting in the door. 21, an overemphasis on being in, uh, God being in control and sovereign over all often results in lazy Christians who bear no fruit for God, who don't pray much, don't witness. And I see that a lot. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter if I pray. I'm just going to get through life with the fewest problems as possible and catch as many fish as I possibly can or whatever. God is God, he is in control, but he in his sovereignty has said, you are part of my plan. You are my brothers and sisters, Jesus declared. You're the sons and daughters of the most high God. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he's given to us responsibility. And some are faithful and obedient, others aren't. And when we stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, it's going to make a huge difference. And there definitely will be people in heaven because 
you shared the gospel with them. And there will be people in hell because nobody did. And that's God's plan in our world. And so I want personally to pray and to work and to serve. As Wesley said, I work like everything matters to me. And when it's done, I give all the glory to God because I know that he ultimately accomplished it through me and others. And so we labor, we pray, we're diligent, we give, we teach. We're responsible because it matters. It really does. God's not willing that any perish. He's not willing that any of us be unholy or unrighteous, but many are. And it's because people who have been given responsibility and gifts don't do what they ought to do. Uh, Matt Bain does a little announcement for men's camp. And in that uh, announcement, he said that you might be champions for Jesus and make a difference. Uh, There are those who do and there are those who don't. There are those who are diligent and those who are not. There are those who make sacrifice and those who don't. And it makes a difference in this world, in this life, what we do and how faithful we are. And so we choose. We choose over and over whether we're going to pray a bunch or whether we're going to serve and work and give or whether we're just going to take it easy. And it all shows up when we stand before Jesus at the end of our life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that we would be those who trust you totally because you're God, you're in control, you're on your throne. But in the midst of those big rocks that you establish, you've given us some freedom, responsibility to serve or not. And it makes a difference. I pray that we would understand that and that our praying would be recognizing that you move, you change on the basis of our praying. And the more we pray, the more you do. The more angels are released and energized the more the world changes because of us. We love you. Thank you for this authority that you've given us as the church. We want to be faithful servants of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.